Being part of a mastermind has its innate benefits, one of which is gaining perspective from thought leaders in various industries. In today's episode of the Tech Leaders Playbook, we've done just that. We've put together a mastermind episode taking a handful of the best insights. This episode is jam-packed with valuable information you'll be able to apply immediately. Let's dive in. Yeah, I, I was really ambitious. Obviously, I was very young. I had a ton of energy. Um, I, I wanted to. Um, I wanted to work every day. I wanted to learn the MBA game. Um, I was an information seeker, uh, and I still am to this day. Uh, and, and then um, I think one of the uh, w- one of my key components in life, like uh, for me anyway, is that I'm a resilient person. And I think that that really has been enabled me to stay in the MBA so long. And, and that's not something that I've, I've learned. I think that's like in me, it's innate. It, it comes from um, being Armenian, honestly, like we're uh-huh. a resilient group of people. And that was something that was given to me uh, from my grandmother, honestly, I, I believe that. So uh, that's who, I think- who Rex, I, I believe is a uh, genocide survivor, correct? Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, I've documented her story verbally uh, with other interviews I've done. And I I, I talk a lot kind of about how she had to uh, run for her life, literally, and um, and hide and live in other places and uh, running away from her home with absolutely nothing in her hands um, and watching her family uh, uh, either be taken away and massacred or killed in front of her. And, um, you know, I, 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 I think that what I'm doing pales in comparison to what she had to overcome and how she had to stay alive for all these future generations in our family. Right. So, uh, Absolutely. that's, that's where I kind of get my, my daily, um, my daily energy, my daily vitamins is like thinking Amazing. about how, uh, Yefkin and Mahakian, um, survived, right at the age of 13. When I made my first football team, I made a simple promise and it was to step up to every challenge the game put in my way because I knew when I made that tryout that it's where I was meant to be, right? I'd had such a young calling there and this was full circle, but I had no idea what I was getting myself into with that promise. But that's what it is to lead from the forefront. And I think this transitions really well to your audience, to your leadership. I mean, tech is that place, right? You progress towards things that you couldn't necessarily have that really weird reverse goal setting thing. And I've taught these classes, but I had this moment, this epiphany in my life, leading from the front, being an entrepreneur or a barrier breaker or whatever it is, you don't get that security. Right. When we go to college, you say, "Okay, I've got four years. Maybe it'll be three. Maybe it'll be seven because I'm going to take some time. But it's very well mapped out. Right. There's a certain amount of courses. There's a certain amount of papers. You do them faster or slower, but that's on you. There's there's really a big goal and you work backwards when you're leading from the front. You don't get to do that. You kind of have to find a way to create where there's no North Star and For me, that's what it was. And so I think sometimes doing that, what we have to do is continue to get up every day, 
put one foot in front of the other, realize that there are going to be branches and trees and rocks and all of those barriers in the way. But that's the process. It's not about being derailed. It's the learning that you get from saying, yeah, you know what? That didn't work so well. Or gosh, I'd like to never feel that way again. And yet using that momentum to continue to have vision to know that there's something on the other side. I asked them on day one um, that each player, some of them or most of them play professionally at other places around the world, right? Not just in in Yerevan, but some were playing in Spain, some were playing in, in France. And I asked each one of them to sacrifice for the betterment of, of the team, sacrifice shots, sacrifice touches, sacrifice scoring, um, playing time. You know, there was going to have to be a sacrifice made. And I, I made the sacrifice, not for me, um, because they all have an immense amount of, of individual pride and they all want individual success. But I asked them to sacrifice for Armenia and put something that you're sacrificing for bigger than all of us. And um, I, I said to them, if we sacrifice for what is essentially, you know, every our homeland, um, you could always feel like whatever's happening to me or whatever I'm giving up, I'm doing it for the betterment of uh, for Armenia and for this team. And, and it was really, really cool at how there were no egos involved, you know, a little bit different sometimes in coaching in the NBA. Um, but there were no egos involved. There was no, uh, no disciplinary things at all. Everybody was on time. Everybody was respectful. And, and that's one thing, especially as me as the head coach of the Armenian national team, that's the one thing that I demanded. Um, and uh, it, it, my leadership style is a little less demanding, honestly, because um, and, and, I'm not a type of coach who wants to demand things all the time. But I, I demanded that we have respect uh, at, at all at all times, like respect for each other, respect for our opponents, respect for the clock, right, being on time. And that was really important um, for me. And and all our players were great. And uh, I just felt like if we're, if we're going to go on the floor and play against um, wh- whoever, you know, uh, we played Iran and um, uh, Malta and San Marino, whatever countries we were playing, I, I always wanted us to uh, represent Armenia, the, the name on the front of our shirts, in a way that was respectful and, and classy and competitive. And that was uh, what I asked of the team. You, bu- you built a culture so of winning, by the way, and discipline which is 80% of the battle, really. What I understood from what you just said, the lesson was, hey, relax, right? If we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this together and you have to also meet us halfway. You have to become part of our team. Uh, you know, tell me about that. Like, how did that, how do you apply that to, to, to life now? Well, one of the things I think of first and foremost is people would always ask about, you know, how do you command the respect of the men you work with? Every time they say command, I cringe just a little bit because I, first of all, don't believe you command respect. I think you earn respect. Respect is given, right? You can command somebody to do a task. You can demand X, Y, and Z, but 
That's a hierarchical relationship. And as soon as that power dynamic shifts, the resistance is going to be there. It's probably already resistance, but they're not going to comply what you commanded, right? Those are just such ownership, you know, terms. To me, we have to learn each other in whatever situation it is. It's about understanding how can you lead somebody if you don't know them, right? How can you work with somebody if you don't understand them? How can you motivate somebody if you don't know what's at their core? And so for me, it's always a getting to know you process that starts first. I'll use the time I was a head coach for the first time as an example, because I think it's hard to be the, the person, not even woman or man up front, but the person up front, especially that first time, right? Think about the first time that you were the boss and I'm the head coach. And I went in and I'm coaching women too. So I thought that we understood each other better. And I didn't realize that I had done such a great job with this invincible athlete persona in my playing career that I'd made myself unapproachable as a, you know, somebody to share the field with. Like people would say my whole name. I don't say my whole name. I'm like, hey, it's Jen, blah, blah, blah. But my players, like I would go and instruct them on something, <laughs> right? Like, hey, I need you to dip and rip, blah, blah, blah. And the ladies would literally say, but yeah, you can do that because you're Jen Welter. Like, like, I, like I was larger than life. Like I wasn't human. And I realized that I'd created a sense of other. That they didn't know me as a person. And they were giving me credit of things that I did, which looked hard and are hard and are good, but are not impossible to learn. And so I kind of went, like, I'm big on superheroes. Like, I think they can teach us so much, right? Because they're all inherently flawed. They all have superpowers and super weaknesses. And so I made myself be very unsuper superhuman. And I went to all of my players and I made them tell me my kryptonite. And it was fascinating to hear what they would say when they didn't have to just say, oh my gosh, you're Jen Welter. Like, oh, this is this big thing. Um, and, you know, I thought my kryptonite would be that I'm five foot two and that I was small. Now, one person did say the top shelf in the closet was a weakness, which I will readily admit. But most of them said I would give so much that I would run myself ragged, which is a very true statement. And also one that I was really struggling with being a head coach for the first time. Um, because there was always something else I could do. There was always someone else I could help. And I was running on empty and I was feeling like I wasn't hitting home. And so once they gave me my kryptonite and they were spot on, then I made all of my players go through and come up with what their superhero self would be, right? What is your superhero name when you're great? And what's your alter ego? And it was really a wonderful exercise in getting to know each other in how we saw ourselves, right? One person called herself Wasp because she was little, but she was fast and could sting and then move. We had this whole way that we could communicate when somebody was on point um, versus when they were not their best selves. And we made it very approachable and there was a whole story narrative around it. But it really allowed us to look at each other, see each other in a different light and come up with a strategy for communication. And for me, that's that's really the exciting part, because 
if you don't know somebody, you'll never be able to motivate them. If I tell you I'm going to give you, um, you know, X amount of dollars if you do Y and you're not money motivated, then you're just going to feel more misunderstood. And it creates even more friction because I feel like I'm doing this great thing, right? Like my intention is on point. My execution is suffering though because I didn't know the person I was I was gearing towards. Whereas if you would have told me, you know what, I have young kids and another couple of dollars isn't as valuable to me as a day off. If you told me if I do X, like I could work a half a day on Friday that week, that would mean more. And then we're both in sync and we're doing things to it. So I think it's that getting to know you process, really. I don't know if you went to the Fast Gala, but uh, Dr. Artem went up and uh, during his speech, you know, he's a, a, he too is a, you know, uh, ancestor. His ancestors were survivors too. And basically explained living in Lebanon, uh, he was literally kidnapped, right, by, by certain groups. And he said, becoming a scientist looked easy. And that's kind of what you're describing, right? People think, wow, you made it to the NBA. That's incredible. You're like, dude, my, you know, my grandmother survived genocide, right? So it's, right. it's, when you look at it from that standpoint, it's not even a conversation. You absolutely could, could do whatever you wanted, right? Like you had a, probably a dream and it sounds like you couldn't get there as a player necessarily. So you chose that other path, which is probably as, as difficult. Um, right. So good for you, man. That's well, incredible. I, I, I have a story. Um, I was probably in the fourth or fifth grade and every day after school, as I mentioned earlier, I'd go out on the basketball court and I would shoot every day for two, three hours until my mother got off of work at five o'clock and then she would be home by 5.30. So I had about two or three hours to just go to the court and I would shoot every day. And that's where I became a, a good shooter. But uh, two of the teachers, one was a principal, one was a teacher after school. They watch all the kids there. I'm still there at five o'clock and they told me to go home. And one of them asked me one day why I come out there and spend three hours a day shooting when I should be home studying or in the library and doing different things. And I told them uh, that I wanted to uh, someday play in the NBA. I said, my dream is to play in the NBA. And I must have been 10 or 11 years old. And they laughed at me first. And then they said, there's no way you're playing in the NBA. And I went home and cried and I, you know, because they didn't believe me, but I, I kept that conversation in me for a very long time. And, and they were right. I, I never did play in the NBA, but I've been in the NBA as a coach for 30 years. So I, I, I kind of, I, I found a different way to stay in the NBA and to get in the NBA. And I tell kids all the time, like playing in the NBA, it's such a small group of people that have ever played in the NBA. I think that it's still, it's like at 5,000, the number of players that have played in the NBA in all this, all these years. Um, wow. it, it's a small fraternity and uh, you know, it's, it's a great goal to have. And if you're a basketball player and you aspire to play in the NBA, go get it. But if you don't have a black backup plan, and if it's staying in sports, there are plenty of different professions in the world of sports that you could jump into. So, um, I try to, I try to pass that message. That's incredible, man. It sounds like you shot for the moon and ended up on the stars. Yeah. <laughs> right. If you can call it that, I mean, this yeah. could be the, the moon, right? I mean, being a coach in the NBA is, is gotta be incredible, but I think a lot of people, their, their dreams are squashed so quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
or they fear their dr- dreams are going to be squashed by others. So what they do is they, they lower the bar. I've right. heard people say, I'd love to play in the uh, college basketball. I'm thinking, why wouldn't you say the NBA? Uh, I, I had a similar story. I wanted to play in the NBA. And people are like, what the hell are you talking about? You're 5'9". You know, and I was like, so <laughs> Muggsy Bogues was five three. You know, Steve, what was his uh, Weber? What was his Steve Webb? It was five uh, seven. Spud Webb. Spud Webb, right? right? And these, these, it, there's been plenty of uh, players, but it didn't matter, right? So like, people lower their expectations or bars. I'm going to play high school ball. Why not NBA? Right. You know, shoot for the right. stars. End up in playing college basketball. Yes, so that's sir. incredible. Man. People get demotivated, and I agree when they don't see a path forward. So, but they can also become increasingly motivated when they feel confident, capable, and comfortable, right? That's the self-efficacy theory. So let's say you have a woman like me in tech sales, okay? I am an intrinsically motivated Mm -hmm. person. I, I have tackled some very, very big things, right? I don't speak tech language. So I might be less motivated, not because I don't want to do well, but because I don't feel like I'm capable of crushing it. So you saying, oh my gosh, Jen, I know this tech stuff sounds complicated. Let me break it down to you in very human terms. Let's use football because you get that. And then you help me, one, see that you're investing time into me. Time is, I had a coach say just, Last weekend in um, an all-star game I was at, it really hit home. Because I would say it's one thing you can't get back, right? But he said, how do you spell love? And I was like, huh? And he said, you spell love, T-I-M-E. Because what you love, you put time to, right? So if you, as my boss, are like, you know what, Jen? I see you as a super huge talent. You have way upside we got we to gotta get you there fast. And you build into me, you are going to increase my motivation and my ROI because you got to my confidence. Motivation and confidence are inherently related. We've all seen the reverse of that, right? Like that person who came in and they felt good and they just got beat down. And then they survive, right? But it's hard to thrive when you don't feel competent, right? Or capable or comfortable. The other thing we can do is help people see. I I usually say to my players, like, I wish I could give you the gift of seeing yourself through my eyes because I know what you're capable of, right? I see X, Y, and Z. And now it's my job to fill in some of those gaps of execution that I can help you in those ways. Because again, if I'm clear in my feedback, and I help you build to where you want to go, which I got to ask first where you want to go. You will be more motivated to get there. So no, I'm not just, you know, come on, you got this. Like, I don't believe in that. Like that ubiquitous, you got this and we're happy, happy, joy, joy. No, like that may get you up emotionally in a moment, but it's harder to follow through. But motivation can actually be enhanced. And there's a lot of really good research on that. Um, but it's through confidence. Well, I try to keep ego out of it as much as I can. My ego for sure. And then what I try to do is defuse the ego of the player as much as I can. 
And how do you do that? That's the key. How do you diffuse their egos? The first thing I do is I, I, I spend time with the player prior to the season beginning. Because if the first time I'm going to either meet the player or ask the player to do something is on the practice court, then I'm already, I've already lost in that relationship building process. I need, for me anyway, I need to invest time in the player prior to getting on the floor. I, I need, as soon as I get the job in whatever city I'm in, I need to go visit our players. I need to see where our players live. I need to sit down and break bread. We need dinners. We need talking. We need laughing. Um, we need a, 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 a mutual sense of respect for each other before I even start coaching uh, a player. And one of the things I ask all our players is, is just to allow me to coach you hard. Um, respectfully, I'll always respect you. I'll never embarrass you. I'll never disrespect you in front of a group. Um, but I, I want to be honest and hard with you because I think that that's, that's my, my style is, um, is to come at you straight and be honest and hard and, uh, and, and also listen to what you have to say as a player. But, um, you know, my first, uh, my first interaction, I got the job in Toronto with the Raptors and, um, my first interaction with DeMar DeRozan, who was a, three-time all-star, maybe Olympian, USA Olympian at the time. I We were both in Los Angeles. It was in the summertime. And I called him and asked him if we could meet. And um, I went to uh, Toronto on a one-year contract, uh, which is kind of unheard of. You know, it's a, a very small contract. So I didn't know what was going to happen after that season. Uh, DeMar DeRozan was in the last year of his player contract with the Raptors. So we were both kind of, you know, we were there going to be basically for eight months possibly. Right. Uh, and I met with him and I said to him um, over lunch, uh, we don't have a lot of time to gain trust in each other right now, but we have to just open up and we have to be able to trust each other. I'm going to listen to you. I'll trust you. You're going to have to listen to me and trust me. And believe me, I want what's best for you. And, um, you know, we built a, a relationship off of that first day that I think really, really, it stands until today. You know, he's still one of my best friends. And, um, you know, we, we still talk on the phone uh, weekly about the, the NBA and things. But I... I I think that honesty when you're leading people is is the best way, at least for me it is. And, um, you know, Kevin Durant, uh, unbelievable player, maybe the best player in the world. Um, you know, there were times where I got on him so hard. I, I wasn't even coaching him at the time. We were in the NBA All-Star Game in Los Angeles, and we were the coaches for the All-Star Game, and he was an All-Star, and he was on the uh, on the team. And uh, it was the last few minutes of the game, and he was guarding James Harden, who was on the uh, the other team. We were Team uh, LeBron, I believe, yeah. right? For those no more East know West, also, right? Yeah, no more East West. We were Team LeBron. It was LeBron and and Anthony Davis and Durant and Westbrook. Oh, we had we had a, a great team, and it was the last couple of minutes of the game, and uh, the game got really competitive. And and uh, Kevin Durant was guarding James Harden, and he let him go left twice to the rim for a layup, and we called a timeout. And I felt like I was still coaching Oklahoma City. And I had Kevin Durant in front of me and I started getting on him uh, in an all-star game about letting James Harden get to his left hand. And I'm yelling at Kevin, Kevin, 
What are you thinking? You got to cut off his left hand, send him back right. You got plenty of help. AD sitting in the middle of the paint. And he's like, my fault, Rex, my fault. Like, I'll, I'll clean up. And um, one of the players after the timeout said to me, you can't, you can't, you can't talk to Kevin like that. And I said, you know what? We can. I said, I have such a relationship with him that he knows um, my delivery is all about uh, respect and love and admiration and getting it right. And uh, and his delivery back to me, he could say whatever he wants, whenever he wants, because I know that the respect is coming back my way also. And and I believe that's just kind of built up from, you know, a number of years, a number of talks, a number of lunches, a number of downtime, you know. It's all about relationships, it sounds like, Rex. I don't know if you've ever heard of the concept of radical candor. Great book, by the way. The concept is if you care deeply about someone, you can uh, challenge them directly, right? Mm. But you have to, you have to to care about them because anything less than that is, is, is something else, right? It becomes something else. And if you do care about them deeply, but don't challenge them, it's called ruinous empathy. Mm. Uh, and the whole concept is because I know you, we have a good relationship. I'm never going to be hard on you. I'm always going to be your biggest cheerleader. The problem with that is you're going to allow me to, 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 uh, you know, miss the mark. You're going to allow me to settle for mediocrity. And, and I, as a winner, will not allow a coach to do that. Uh, I've never allowed any of my players to give me mediocrity, right? When I say players, I mean, I've been in leadership for 20 20 plus years. I was leading Mm -hmm. uh, people at 19 years old up until this point. And so I think though it is the, you said it beautifully, you basically built a relationship so they allowed you to be tough on them. And I think that's, that's brilliant. When you see a dip in the performance, and in my world, it's not physical, right? I know you didn't hurt yourself or whatever, but there's a significant decrease in performance. Something is going on that's not physical, which means it's mental. And one of the things we don't want to do in that situation is compound the trauma or compound the like turtling effect, right? You kind of, you like I say, it's like a turtle. We just pull in and protect ourselves. And I think it's a natural instinct where people say like, you know, they'll go to, and I've heard it so many times. And again, certain things make me just kind of go like, I'll hold my breath. It's like, what's wrong with you? Okay. What's wrong with me implies something wrong with me inherently, not what's wrong. Again, that's something different. And I phrase it even differently. I just say, are you okay? Hey, are you okay? It's not like you. Can I invite a conversation? Because even notice, like I've had people, like I've had guys that I coach that are like, it's like she could see into my soul. Like I couldn't hide anything. She would just, well, your game told it to me. Now I ask you because like, do you need a minute? And that just means, do you need a minute to talk about whatever has your mind elsewhere? Because until I can help you work through what has your mind elsewhere outside of performance we're not going to get you back to focused. And so would they always answer? No. But even noticing the difference and caring enough to offer a minute or an ear is important, right? And it may not happen the first time. It may happen the second time. But for so many times, it was something life-based, not work-based. But we bring our lives to our work, right? We're not we're not robotic. And I'm 
you work because of the things in your life. So when that's really off kilter, when something is really off, that isolation of problem tends to make people want to get more protective, right? To get more, more, you know, oh, I got to protect. Turtling. Right? Yeah, turtling, like I said. And you said being small. So building a bridge that you're investing time into them as a human will make it much easier to coach them as a performer or a professional or a player. So like the amount of times and literally I would be like, hey, you know, you know, what's up? Are you okay? Yeah, coach, do you have a minute? Sure. Like, coach, man, my wife is so mad at me and I, I don't even know what I did. And I'd be like, you know what? I'm an expert at male-female translation. What did you do? Right? Well, coach, I said this. Okay, so she heard this. Well, coach, why would she hear this when I said that? No, no, no. I said I had a minute. I don't have time to explain why that disconnect is. We need we need much longer than a minute. Do you want me to tell you how to fix it? Yeah, coach, that'd be great. Talk them through it. Oh, man, coach, you know, that really helped. Things better with my wife. We've now put time into the relationship. And what that means is to then say, hey, you know what? Uh, next time you make that call, like, let's get to closing questions or, you know, um, whatever that, what that area is that straight coaching on performance, you're much, it's much easier to get to those kind of specifics and those performance-based variables when you have a relationship that's based on trust and love where you both put time in. And I think too often we just think that there's, there's a, there's a fast forward button when it comes to relationship. And I get it. We have to get places fast. Right. But I think being open and honest, even behind motivation, behind feedback is one of the things that that really can help with that performance. You know, like, hey, hey, I see how good you can be. I want to know where that person is. I know that that person's here, but something's off right now. Let's talk about it. How can I be a resource to you? What do you need? And sometimes it helps them to come out of their shell to just you know, really be like, hey, how can I be a better boss, better leader, better friend, any of those things for you in this situation? Because something's off and I'm racking my brain to fix it. And I, I can't do that without your help. So invite them into the conversation. My first interaction with DeMar DeRozan, who was a three-time All-Star, maybe Olympian, USA Olympian at the time. I We were both in Los Angeles. It was in the summertime. And I called him and asked him if we could meet. And um, I went to... Uh, Toronto on a one-year contract, uh, which is kind of unheard of. You know, it's a, a very small contract, so I didn't know what was going to happen after that season. Uh, DeMar DeRozan was in the last year of his player contract with the Raptors, so we were both kind of, you know, we were there going to be basically for eight months possibly, right? Uh, and I met with him, and I said to him um, over lunch, uh, we don't have a lot of time to gain trust in each other right now. But we have to just open up and we have to be able to trust each other. I'm going to listen to you. I'll trust you. You're going to have to listen to me and trust me. And believe me, I want what's best for you. And, um, you know, we built a, a relationship off of that first day 
that I think really, really, it stands until today. You know, he's still one of my best friends. And, um, you know, we, we still talk on the phone uh, weekly about the, the NBA and things. But I, I, I think that honesty when you're leading people is, is the best way, at least for me it is. And, um, you know, Kevin Durant, uh, unbelievable player, maybe the best player in the world. Um, you know, there were times where I got on him so hard. I, I wasn't even coaching him at the time. We were in the NBA All-Star game in Los Angeles and we were the coaches for the All-Star game. And he was an All-Star and he was on the uh, on the team. And uh, it was the last few minutes of the game. And he was guarding James Harden, who was on the, uh, the other team. We were team uh, LeBron, I believe. Yeah. Right. For those no of more you East know West, the All-Star. Right? Yeah, no more East West. We were team LeBron. It was LeBron and, and Anthony Davis and Durant and Westbrook. Uh, we had we had a, a great team. And it was the last couple minutes of the game. And uh, the game got really competitive. And and uh, Kevin Durant was guarding James Harden. And he let him go left twice to the rim for a layup. And we called a timeout. And I felt like I was still coaching Oklahoma City and I had Kevin Durant in front of me and I started getting on him uh, in an all-star game about letting James Harden get to his left hand. And I'm yelling at Kevin, Kevin, what are you thinking? You got to cut off his left hand, send him back right. You got plenty of help. AD sitting in the middle of the paint. And he's like, my fault, Rex, my fault. Like, I'll, I'll clean up. And um, one of the players after the timeout said to me, you can't, you can't, you can't talk to Kevin like that. And I said, you know what? We can. I said, I have such a relationship with him that he knows um, my delivery is all about uh, respect and love and admiration and getting it right. And uh, and his delivery back to me, he could say whatever he wants, whenever he wants, because I know that the respect is coming back my way also. And and I believe that's just kind of built up from, you know, a number of years, a number of talks, a number of lunches a number of downtime, you know. It's all about relationships, it sounds like, Rex. I don't know if you've ever heard of the concept of radical candor. Great book, by the way. The concept is, if you care deeply about someone, you can uh, challenge them directly, right? Mm. But you have to, you have to, to care about them because anything less than that is, is, is something else, right? It becomes something else. And if you do care about them deeply, but don't challenge them, it's called ruinous empathy. Mm. Uh, and the whole concept is because I know you, we have a good relationship. I'm never going to be hard on you. I'm always going to be your biggest cheerleader. The problem with that is you're going to allow me to, 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 uh, you know, miss the mark. You're going to allow me to settle for mediocrity. And, and I, as a winner, will not allow a coach to do that. Uh, I've never allowed any of my players to give me medioc mediocrity, right? When I say players, I mean, I've been in leadership for 20, 20 plus years. I was leading mm -hmm. uh, people at 19 years old up until this point. And so I think though, it is the, you said it beautifully, you basically built the relationship so they allowed you to be tough on them. And right. I think that's, that's brilliant. And that brings us to the end of another great episode of the Tech Leaders Playbook. I want to thank you for joining us and hope you took away some valuable insights to apply in your professional journey. Don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss out on the next great conversation. I promise it'll be good. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you could leave us a review. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but also help others discover the podcast. 
better leaders mean better working environments. Better working environments leads to happier people. Remember, a rising tide lifts all boats. I'm Avita Santablian, and this has been the Tech Leaders Playbook. Keep leading, keep learning, keep giving, and I'll see you on the next one. Until then, stay inspired, my friends.